Okay, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you save sinners. And thank you that you even use sinful people to put together uh, not only the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. And we trust that your will was done. And we trust that what we have in our English Bibles today is your very word. So as we look at that process over the next few weeks, may our uh, faith be encouraged uh, that you indeed uh, worked through people to collect your very words for us. And then may we cling to your words and hide it, hide your word in our heart that we may not sin against you in Jesus' name. Amen. So in the next few classes, we're going to look at how we got the New Testament, how it was put together. 25 years ago, fresh out of college, as I was dating Heather before we got married, I was so fascinated with this subject and this topic, and I had all these books that I would read all the time. It was just, this was the thing that I loved, how the New Testament was put together. Um, lots of books by F.F. Bruce, if you know him, Frederick, Frederick 5 E. Bruce, uh, The Canon of Scripture, The Books and the Parchments. These are books that I just devoured, and... Over the years, I've really forgotten all that stuff. No one tells you that when you get old, you start losing everything. <laughs> so as I was reading some of those books this week, I was like, man, I underlined some really cool stuff in these books. And I can't remember any of this. So I'm kind of relearning again what I used to know 25 years ago. But it used to be a subject that I was very fascinated uh, by and with and would study all the time. But how was the New Testament Put together, and who decided which books would actually go into and be included, and which books were then left out, which gospels would be included, and then what about all the other letters that were written, and what about Paul's other letters? After all, the Apostle Paul wrote two other letters to the Corinthian church. Uh, did you know that our first and second Corinthians is really second and fourth Corinthians? Because Paul wrote two other letters to this church. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 5 that he had already written to the church once. And then in 2 Corinthians, he tells us that he wrote a severe letter after he wrote 1 Corinthians. So where are those two letters? And why didn't those two letters get included in the New Testament? And if we don't have the original manuscripts, the actual letters of Paul, how do we know if what we have is what the original letter or book actually said? For instance, how do we know that our version of Hebrews is the book of Hebrews as it was originally written? How do we know if the Gospel of Mark that we have in our Bibles is actually what Mark himself wrote down? These are all good questions and all with sufficient answers. So who decided which books and letters would get included in what we now know as the New Testament? That's what we're going to be looking at in the next few classes. And by way of reminder, next week there is no class because of the preliminary budget meeting. But the next few classes, we're going to be talking about this. Uh, and when we discuss the topic of the New Testament and how it was put together, and if you read up on the subject, you'll come across this phrase, the New Testament canon. Maybe you've heard it said before, uh, what is the canon? Is it a weapon? No. What is the New Testament canon? Where does this word come from? What does it mean? It comes from the Greek word canon. It comes from the Greek word canon, which simply means rule or standard. Like we saw last week with the Apostles' Creed, 
The Apostles' Creed was referred to as the rule of faith. So in Greek, the word canon referred to a rod, like a measuring rod. It was a a straight rod that was used to measure something like a measuring stick. And so the New Testament canon is our standard of faith and practice. It's how we measure truth. It's our standard. It's our rule. So as Christians, we look to the New Testament and the Old Testament as the rule or the authority for all matters of faith and practice. Now, I really like what the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1646, says about God's word, about how we receive the Bible as God's word by faith because of the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And we receive it as the only rule or standard of our faith. And so here's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. It says, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby... It doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So it's saying that we are moved by the testimony of the early church to esteem scripture as God's holy word, as we study it, As we read it, it becomes clear to us that this is the very word of God. And all this happens because the Holy Spirit is persuading us and assuring us that the Bible that we have is the word of God. The Spirit is bearing witness by and with the word. Remember, we are a people of faith. We believe We believe the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and minds, as the Westminster Confession says, to persuade us that the Bible is God's Word. Now, we don't just believe, like blind faith, okay, I believe it. We can study, we can examine, we can say, why is there a different ending to Mark's Gospel? I think Mark's Gospel ends at verse 8. Why is there this weird ending? We can study and say, oh, the manuscript evidence points to the fact that this is a late edition. So the ending of Mark, which you'll have, you'll notice in your Bibles is bracketed off. We can examine that evidence and study and say, this is most likely not original. So there are lots of things like that we can do. So we don't just say God's word. We don't, we believe it. We don't study. No, we can study. We can examine And that just comes along and confirms what we believe by faith. Because the Spirit is assuring us that God's word is true. That the Bible is God's word. Therefore, we can confidently read the Bible as God's very words to us. So the Spirit is at work in us to believe. And he was also at work in those who wrote the New Testament and those who compiled and organized the New Testament canon. I mean, that's one thing we sometimes forget when we discuss Uh, how the Bible is put together is obviously God's very interested in this, isn't he? And if he inspired the, the authors of Scripture to write their letters and their Gospels and whatever it is that they're writing, uh, like John's apocalyptic letter, the book of Revelation, if the Spirit is inspiring them to write that book and we believe that, 
It makes sense then that the Spirit is going to inspire His church to collect the right books to put together. He has a vested interest in this as well. And sometimes that kind of gets left out of the discussion. But the Spirit of God is working through these people to write, and He's working through His people to put this collection together. So when we speak of the New Testament canon, here's what we mean. It's the list of writings acknowledged by the church as documents of the divine revelation. As these are the things that God inspired. He inspired people by his spirit to write and they themselves are inspired. It's those books and letters that the early church regarded and acknowledged as God's word. So... If we found those copies of those extra letters of Paul that he wrote to the Corinthian church, would we add them to the New Testament? Would we include them just because Paul wrote them? No. So if we wake up tomorrow and someone says, hey, we found the real 1 Corinthians. And you can tell it's written by Paul. Would we add that to the Bible? No. Because the canon is now closed. We're not accepting any new revelations. We're not accepting any new writings. But how did the church decide which books would be included? What were the criteria? Now, before we answer that, let's go back and let's see what, what the spiritual climate was like leading up to the writings of the New Testament. First, why did the early church need a New Testament? Why did the early church decide to put all of these writings together? They, they had uh, the Old Testament right. And they're able to go back and say, Jesus said he's all over this. It's all pointing to him. And clearly, you get in uh, the Gospels, you get into Acts, you get into Paul's letters. You have people pointing back to the Old Testament. Why was that not sufficient enough? Who decided to put all these writings together? Now, some people think that the early church was just simply responding to the heretic Marcion. Remember him? Some people say the whole reason the church put together the New Testament was because of that rascally heretic Marcion and what he was doing. Remember Marcion, born in about 85, died in about 160 AD. He was the son of a bishop in Rome. He knew the Old Testament growing up around his dad. And as he got older, he became this wealthy ship owner, and he had a lot of money. He was a successful businessman, and around A.D. 140, he arrived back in Rome where he was welcomed by the church because his dad was a bishop, and he soon donated a lot of money to the church to help them build this new building. But just a few, really four years later, less than four years later, his wacky views actually got him in trouble, and he was actually excommunicated from the church as a heretic. We've talked about Gnosticism a lot. He was influenced by Gnosticism. Marcion believed that there were two gods, the wrathful, angry God of the Old Testament and the very gentle, kind, loving God of the New Testament. But we saw today in 1 Kings 19, what? God's gentle there too. He's not just angry. And so Marcion thought that the Old Testament, the Jews in their scriptures, had zero value because it's all associated with this very angry, wrathful God who's just so uptight and just wants to nuke everybody. And so Marcion puts together his own Bible, which is a chopped up version of Luke and the ten letters of Paul. Now, Marcion did this because he was asking a good question as he was formulating his own New Testament. He was saying, what is the relationship of the Old Testament law and, and Christians? Marcion's question wasn't wrong. It was his answer to his question that was wrong. Marcion's answer is that there's no connection. There's no relationship between the Old Testament law and Christianity. He thought the law and the gospel 
don't belong together. They don't play well together on the playground. Whereas we would say that God's law condemns us and shows us that we're sinners and shows us that we need a Savior. And then that makes us run to the gospel. And then the gospel sends us back to God's law to obey it and to show our love for God and our love for neighbor through our obedience. Marcion would say, I want nothing to do with God's law. So what did Marcion do? He created his own Bible. He at the letters that were circulating at the time, he said, in the gospels that were circulating at the time, he said, these are the ones that sound the most gospely to me, and I'm going to put them together as my own little Bible. And so he picked Luke's gospel and the ten letters of Paul. And he didn't really take Luke's gospel as it was. He kind of chopped it up into the parts. He took out all the parts that sounded very Jewish, that made Jesus sound Jewish, and then he kind of came up with Luke 2.0. So some scholars think... That's the reason why the early church decided to put together the New Testament. They say it was all in response to the heretic Marcion. They say that the church reacted and they were like, wow, this Marcion guy is getting very popular and his books are selling like crazy. And he's got this new Bible that's about to be published by Thomas Nelson and come out. Oh no, we should have our own books too and our own Bible. Let's make our own list of our New Testament books. But that's not the reason why. In fact, the way the church responded to Marcion was not to try to put together the New Testament because the four Gospels and most of Paul's letters were already being copied and they had authority at this time. The church responded not by saying we needed a list of the New Testament books because they were already circulating. The church responded when theologians began writing book after book condemning Marcion as a heretic and they were using scripture in their books to prove that he was a heretic. So they didn't respond by saying we need our own New Testament. They simply took scripture that they knew and wrote books and published them. So we saw this a while uh, ago. We looked at Tertullian and and, uh, Irenaeus who launched an attack on him. In 207 and 208 AD, Tertullian published his most popular book, which was simply and appropriately titled Against Marcion. What's the name of your new book? Uh, Against Marcion? That works. And it was five volumes. Five volumes against Marcion. And one by one, argument by argument, Tertullian dismantled Marcion's views. So the New Testament canon was not compiled in response to Marcion, as some people say. The New Testament was written and compiled because it is part of the story of God's redemption. The New Testament was written because the Old Testament leaves you with this cliffhanger. The Old Testament ended and there's no conclusion. You're left hanging. What's going to happen? This is kind of the way I think of it. Think of the Old Testament ending like the way the Empire Strikes Back ends in Star Wars. At the end of what we now know as Episode 5 of of the Star Wars series, uh, what do we see? We see Luke. The big big thing that happens is Luke learns that his dad is Darth Vader, right? I mean, every um, eight-year-old kid like me that heard that was just, I mean, you could hear Jaws drop. In the theaters, what? That guy is Luke's dad? It was like, my world has just crumbled. And i got to wait three years for the resolution. So Luke gets his hand cut off by his dad. He refuses to join the dark side. He falls down that shaft thing. He flies out of Cloud City and hangs on to that little thing. He gets picked up by the Millennium Falcon. He has surgery. He gets this new robotic hand. Then he joins his, we learn it's his sister, Princess Leia. 
who he's already kissed, which that was weird. I mean, they were just messing with our heads. He's with Princess Leia, he's with C-3PO, he's with R2-D2, and they watch Lando Calrissian and Chewbacca fly off in the Millennium Falcon to go look for Han Solo, who is now frozen in carbonite and on his way to Jabba the Hutt's palace, courtesy of Boba Fett. And then it ends. Then it ends, and it goes black, and you get those blue glowy letters, and it's over. But what if it was really over? Like, what if they never came out with Return of the Jedi? What if we never got a conclusion to the story? How terrible. You're left wanting to know what happens with the Skywalker family. These people are brother and sister. That guy is their dad. Oh, my goodness. That's how the Old Testament ends. It ends and it's not resolved. There's no closure. The question is, what happened to the Davidic family line? What happened to the Davidic kingdom? What about all those promises to David? That's what you're left with at the end of the Old Testament. And so this is the context that helps us set up the need for the New Testament canon. How does the story end? What about that promise in Genesis 3 that one of Eve's descendants would come and crush the head of the serpent? What about the promise in Deuteronomy 18 where God said he would raise up another prophet just like Moses? What about all the other prophecies? So the Jews of the first century, we know, were waiting for the Messiah. They were waiting for the restoration of Israel. They were anticipating all of the promises and the prophecies being fulfilled. And we see this in passages in the New Testament. Like, when, remember when Andrew went and told his brother Peter that he found the Messiah? John 1, 41, it says, He first found his own brother Simon and said, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So everybody's anticipating. Remember Simeon at the temple when they brought baby Jesus to him? It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So he was waiting. Then the prophetess Anna at the temple when they brought the baby Jesus to her, Luke 2.38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And then right before his own ascension, the disciples asked Jesus a question in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. When they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember, they are under the oppression of Rome. They were living back in the land. They come out home from exile in Babylon. They were living in the land, but Rome was over them. Rome was in charge. So they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now, Jesus? So in the first century, there was this heightened expectation that God would break into the world in a very special way and finally finish the story. The Jews at this time did not see the story as complete. They were waiting for the return of the Jedi or the return of the Messiah. Because the book was halfway done. So there's heightened expectation by the time of Jesus. Now what's interesting, after they, the disciples asked Jesus in Acts 1 about restoring the nation of Israel, the political nation of Israel, after Pentecost, the apostles never mentioned the national restoration of political Israel again. Never once did they bring it up again. Because they now realize it's all fulfilled in Jesus. Just something to think about. 
Because that becomes a theological framework for a lot of people saying that God has this gigantic plan for national political Israel and the disciples never bring it up again in the book of Acts. Because they're seeing all of this stuff in the Old Testament was moving toward Jesus the Messiah and it's now all fulfilled in him. So there's this desire to see how the story ends. And we see that with the way that the Old Testament ends. In the Hebrew Bible, which is different from the English Bible, the listing of the books, in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament ends, do you know what book it ends with? Your favorite book, First and Second Chronicles, <laughs> right? The one you read all the time, the one that's highlighted and marked up and the pages are falling out, right? Our English Bibles end with the prophet who? Malachi, right? But the Hebrew Bible ends with First and Second Chronicles, which are really just one book in Hebrew. It's just they're called. It's just called Chronicles. Um, the very last. This is what's interesting. The very last word of the Hebrew Bible. You know what it is? The very last word of what we would say is Second Chronicles. You know what the very last word is? Y'all. <laughs> to go up. Make of that what you will. That God ends the Old Testament with the word y'all. To go up. But why end the Hebrew Bible with Chronicles? Because that's the end of the Davidic reign. People are carted off to Babylon. Now we know and we have other books like Ezra and Nehemiah that they come back after 70 years in exile. So why end the book with Chronicles? Why not end with Ezra and Nehemiah? The people back in the land rebuilding the temple. Why not end that way? Why not end with Malachi, who probably, his prophecy was probably given and written around the same time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So why not end the Hebrew Bible with Malachi or Ezra or Nehemiah? Ezra and Nehemiah come before 1 Chronicles, but why end with Chronicles? Because it's a fitting end to the Old Testament, because they are still waiting for the promised Davidic king to come and to restore Israel. And so the book of Chronicles puts the reader in the state of anticipation, looking for and hoping that God would once again break into history with his Davidic king, which we now know as Jesus. In fact, we see a time... Go ahead, Barb. I just... I, I was under the impression that um, Jews relied a lot on, especially Isaiah. Is that not true? Oh, they, they would have, definitely. But... But that is not in their scripture? No, Isaiah is. It's just, it's, it's not, it's just, it ends with, like the list of books in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, and it goes down, and the very last book in the Hebrew Bible ends with First and Second Chronicles. So the way it's ordered, it's like our book ends with Revelation, it would be like they came along, somebody came along and finally said, let's just put uh, Titus at the end. So they've put it together. The way they've listed the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is very significant because they're, they're wanting and they're hoping and they're waiting. So Isaiah, all of that stuff is in there in the list. It's just the very last book that you get to read in the Hebrew Bible is Chronicles. So, and here's why. Because there's a tie to Chronicles with Matthew's Gospel, which is the beginning of our, what we know as the New Testament beginning of our version of the Bible. Uh, how does, anybody know how First and Second Chronicles begins? It begins with a genealogy. 
Okay? A genealogy of David. How does Matthew begin his gospel? With a genealogy and a specifically a genealogy of David. So Matthew is actually picking up the story where First Chronicles left off. Because you're like, come on, Matthew, you're starting a gospel with a genealogy. Do you know that 21st century Christians are going to tune out when they see a genealogy? Come on, Matthew, that's not a way to start a book. So why is Matthew starting with the genealogy? Because he's linking us back to Chronicles and saying, I'm picking up where the story left off. The promised Davidic king that everybody was waiting for has now come in the person and work of Jesus. And I'm going to give you the return of the Messiah now, if you will. See, there are only two books in the Bible that begin with a genealogy. We're supposed to catch that. But we don't like genealogies, do we? Because they're boring. And we skip them. And I'm joking when I say that. And yet Chronicles and Matthew are saying to us, Jesus is the Davidic king and he completes the story. So there's this connection back to Chronicles, the last book of the Old Testament, with Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. And so later on, when the New Testament canon is compiled, what book do they start with? Matthew. Because he picks up where Chronicles leaves off, where the story left off of the genealogy of David. Now, I personally believe that Mark was written first. There are some scholars that believe Matthew was written. But even if Mark was written first, when the early church decided to put together the New Testament canon, they stick Matthew at the very beginning because they want to connect Matthew back with Chronicles. Even though I think, in my opinion, that Mark was written First, In fact, I think there were other Gospels that were written at this time that even Mark relied on. If you, if you read upon this, you're going you're gonna to read about something called Q. And it's what scholars say that there's uh, information, a Gospel out there, writings, collections of stories of Jesus. And they're saying that Mark is probably relying on Q. They just call it that, saying he's getting some of his information from someone else. And then he eventually is inspired by the Holy Spirit to put together uh, what is his, known as his gospel, the gospel of Mark. All right, any questions or comments up to this point? So we don't know which one is written first. Obviously, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are drawing on other resources as they're writing their gospels because they're writing them some 30 years after Jesus has already ascended and gone to heaven. So there's oral transmission, there's oral story. So as they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, they're doing investigative work and compiling stories and catching things. And then at whatever moment, they're sitting down and inspired by the Spirit and writing their version of the gospel. So Matthew is showing us at the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the Davidic king par excellence. He's the one that the whole Old Testament was pointing to and anticipates, anticipating. So... It makes sense that after Jesus comes and he is the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament, it makes story then, it makes sense then that the rest of the story get recorded, right? It makes sense that the story that was finished in real time in a real person in Jesus, it makes story that at some point that story, did I just say it makes some story? It makes some point that that story at some point would be written down on paper with ink for other people to read as well. 
So we see that there's a need to finish telling the story and actually getting it written down. Some 30 years after the time of Jesus, whenever the first gospel was written. And that's why we get the New Testament. Now, of course, there was a oral transmission of the gospel. People are telling stories about Jesus for those 30 years before any of the gospels are ever written. Stories were spread orally. The gospel was, was spread orally. But eventually, the stories are recorded and written down on paper. There came a time for them to be written down on paper uh, for others to read and that's why we get the New Testament canon. That's why we get the New Testament. That's why it's developed, so that the gospel story could be written down in Koine Greek, which was the very common language that everybody spoke in the first century. So it could be written down in Koine Greek, common language of the time, and then could go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So finally, the question is, what was the criteria for how they put together the New Testament Canon. How did they determine which books would be included in what we now know as the New Testament? So as the church uh, wrestled with what should go in and what shouldn't, these were the three criteria. Number one, it was apostolicity. Slash antiquity. Apostolicity or antiquity. And here's what we mean by that. Whatever was included in the New Testament, the first criteria was it had to be written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. It had to be written by someone like Paul or someone who was discipled by Paul. It had to be written by uh, Peter or someone who was discipled by Peter, which was Mark. And so we even see that with Peter and Mark. We get Peter's letters included, and then Peter discipled Mark, and then Mark writes the gospel, and that gets included. So the first criteria was apostolicity, written by an apostle or written by an associate, someone who was discipled by an apostle. And part of that first criteria also is antiquity, meaning it had to be written before 100 AD. When they're looking at them... They're saying it has to be written before 100 A.D., which would have been about 70 years after Jesus' ascension, give or take a few years. So you get that 70-year window from when Jesus ascends to heaven to the end of the first century. And they said, if we're going to include anything, it has to happen in this window. Now, there are people, when you read about this, who think that the canon wasn't closed until the 4th century and so they say any document written up until the 4th century was open game. Any document that was written in the 4th century could have been included. The Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Peter, any of the apostolic fathers and their writings that we've been looking at. All of those writings, according to some people, were open game to be included in the New Testament, but that's not the case. Very early on, the church recognized the importance of apostolicity and antiquity. In fact, there's a document called the Muratorian Fragment, which was written in 170 AD. Let me write it down if you want to know the name of it. The Muratorian Fragment. Fragment. 
And it acknowledges the shepherd of Hermas, which was written in A.D. 130. And we looked at that, I don't know, eight or nine, however many classes ago. One of the apostolic fathers, the shepherd of Hermas. Uh, And the Muratorian fragment says that even though the shepherd of Hermas is a good book and it's beneficial and it's edifying if you read it, the Muratorian fragment says it should not be read in church because it does not have the same seal of authority as these other books that they were looking at. Here's what it says. It says, but Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in our times. So he's saying it's a current thing. Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently in our times in the city of Rome while Bishop Pius, his brother, was occupying the Episcopal chair of the church of the city of Rome. And therefore, it ought indeed to be read, but it cannot be read publicly to the people in church either among the prophets whose number is complete or among the apostles for it is after their time. So he's saying that you can't read it in church publicly along with the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, or along with the apostolic writings that we have of Peter and Paul, because it is after their time. It's written in 130 AD, and they're saying it didn't occur in this window, so we can't include it. So the Muratorian fragment in AD 170 says that even though the Shepherd of Hermas was written in 130 AD, it's a good and edifying book. It should not be read in church along with Scripture, the Old Testament prophets, and the New Testament apostles because it doesn't have the same seal of authority as these other books did. So they recognized in the second century, the church recognized there are other books and letters that were beneficial, but they shouldn't be included because they don't have the same authority. So if you read up on this and you encounter people that say any document up to the fourth century was open game to be included in the New Testament canon, they're wrong. And the Muratorian fragment helps clear this up. So there's a line of demarcation that says anything after 100 A.D. cannot be included and anything not written by an apostle or one of their associates. So the first criteria helps keep out anything written after the first century. And there were a lot of books being written and a lot of things floating around. And so the church began to realize very early on we have to have a criteria here because there's stuff just people writing stuff all the time. So, who set that criteria? Just the lead, the bishops of the time set that criteria. Like uh, the the Muratorian fragment is at least so giving us. They didn't have a big meeting and make up this sort of. Not an official big meeting that I know of. I think it was more just common as they communicated with one another and said, "We're not going with that book." We heard you guys are using that book in your church. Your pastor shouldn't preach from that book. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, maybe I missed this class, but. So it was bishops and stuff in the early church. I mean, after the apostles and the disciples, uh, I know you said it's not the yeah. Catholic church. But yeah. Yeah, the bishops, well, we'll t- actually we'll talk next under Catholicity, so just hold that and then I'll explain how the tra- line of transmission. So that's the second criteria then, is what we'll talk about, is Catholicity. What do we mean by Catholicity. It means that anything that they included had to be universally accepted by all the churches and from the tradition of the apostles. So the apostles had to talk about this and the other churches all throughout the region had to say, again, as we saw with the Apostles' Creed last week, the word Catholic or the Catholicity here that we're talking about means universal. It does not mean Roman Catholic. It just means 
universal. So they're looking for books that the apostles themselves said were authoritative. And where does an apostle in Scripture talk about Paul's letters as having authority? Peter does. Peter does. Peter says, read what Paul wrote, and some things that he writes are really hard to understand, right? So Peter is writing in his letter, and 2 Peter is saying, Paul writes some stuff that's really hard to understand. And you have uh, Paul saying uh, to the Colossians, I think, read the letter from Laodicea. Yeah, Peter actually says that in the other scriptures, I think. Mm-hmm. In his yes, I, thank you for bringing that up. He does, yeah. So he's already, Peter has already in the 60s when he's writing has already identified some of Paul's letters as scripture. Thank you Carl for bringing that up because he not just Peter didn't just say read it. He says read it because it's as with the other scriptures. So he's linking Paul's letters up in 2 Peter with at least the scriptures of the Old Testament, if not some of the other letters that are being written. So they're looking for books that the apostles, like Peter said, were authoritative, who then passed that tradition down to the bishops who came after them. Remember, no one has a copy of the Bible yet, right? Uh, They may have some scraps that they may have copied from someone. They may have had parts of the Old Testament, but if they don't have their own copy of the Bible like we do, how do they discern truth from error? How do they discern orthodoxy from heresy? And that's where, Greg, where the bishops come into play. Because at the end of the first century, moving into the second century, the measure of truth was the bishop. The men who were appointed by the twelve apostles. You have Peter appointing and saying, you're going to take over for me. And those 12 apostles, of course, were appointed by Jesus. So the apostles ordained these men called bishops as the ones who could be trusted with the body of truth, with the rule of faith. That was the role of the bishop who then passed these on to local pastors who then declared the truth to their congregations. So if you remember, we saw we have Jesus who picks the 12 apostles and then... They pick bishops, and then that goes down to local pastors. And when any one of these bishops would have retired or something, they would have then picked another bishop to replace them. So there's this line of truth that we can trace back that was very important. It wasn't just like people are willy-nilly, like, hey, I wrote a letter. It's like, who are you? Remember they dealt this with Marcion. Remember Tertullian, I think? Our Irenaeus went to Marcion and said, you're claiming truth. Trace yourself back to the apostles. He said, your churches that you're planting and, are, and that are you know, planting other churches, who are, what bishop are you tracing yourself back to? And Marcion couldn't do it. He's rogue. And so we've got this line of truth that goes all the way back to Jesus. Uh, Greg? Is it scriptural? Uh, I mean, is it in scripture uh, of them actually... Uh, Naming bishops, the first bishops? Not in scripture, no. no. I mean, does it talk about that they're going to name? No. Uh, they, they pick one in Acts uh, because of Judas. Uh, and obviously Paul is an apostle. But no, we don't have it in scripture as like you're taking over. But this is just kind of the, this is the tradition that we have coming out from there. You want people who can say, I knew Peter, he discipled me, and therefore... There's trustworthy 
there's a trustworthy line there as opposed to Marcion who just kind of shows up one day and can't trace his roots and he starts spouting heresy and they're like, you need to be excommunicated. Even though your dad was a bishop, you can't trace yourself back to anyone who has appointed you. So that was the role of the bishop. He was the guardian of apostolic truth after the apostles. So you go with the guy who was appointed by Peter because Peter was appointed by Jesus. So there's this line of trustworthiness there, even when it comes to putting together the New Testament canon. There's a line of trustworthiness. You're not just picking someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew someone. Oh, I, I, I've met Peter once and I'm writing a letter. I want it to get included in the canon. They're not doing that. You've got to trace this line back. And so the church was asking this question when heresies began to spread. How do I know in the midst of all these heresies what truth is? Who can be trusted with the apostolic message? And when it came to the New Testament canon as well, where did they go? The measure of truth was the bishop. The men who were appointed by the 12 disciples. And so the bishops were telling their churches which books and letters were authoritative as they heard it from the apostles. And so Catholicity becomes a very important factor in determining which books, which gospels, which letters would be considered as authoritative and therefore included in the New Testament canon. So widespread acceptance was important here there's widespread. You've got, you've got this church over here that's saying yes. You've got a church in Corinth saying yes. We validate that. That book is, is authoritative. You've got a church over here in Rome. You've got a church in Jerusalem. You've got all these churches writing and coming together and saying these are the books. And so widespread acceptance helps in the process. So it's not just some guy sitting in an ivory tower deciding all on his own. These are the 27 books of the New Testament. They're actually communicating with one another and, and most likely copying letters and sending them uh, to one another. The third criteria is that anything that they looked at had to be orthodox. Uh, it had to be true. It had to conform to the rule of faith. It had to conform to the body of beliefs that was already established in the church, either through books that were written by people like the... Uh, Apostolic Fathers, or even the Apologists, that had to conform to doctrinal summaries that they have. You know, we have several songs and kind of doctrinal summaries in the New Testament. Uh, a lot of people believe that Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus humbling himself and being exalted at the right hand of the Father, that that was a hymn. You have another hymn in First or Second Timothy um, so they're looking at this, even, even the songs that they're singing and saying, does this, what we're looking at, does that jive with uh, the songs that we sing on Sunday morning? Uh, does it jive with the teachings that we've heard? Does it jive with the Old Testament? Because if it's going to contradict any body of our belief, then anything in there contradicts it. Even one little sentence contradicts what we have in our body of belief, then it cannot be included in the canon. So, for instance, some books were rejected because they did not affirm God as creator. We've talked a lot about that. Heretics saying that God is not the creator of this world because this world is bad. So God wouldn't be a part of this world. There were books that didn't talk about and affirm that creation is good. So they may have said good things about Jesus. But if they said that creation was bad, there's like, this book is out of here. They had to affirm that Jesus was truly human and truly divine. In fact, 
people didn't really have a problem with Jesus being truly divine, that Jesus was God. As we've seen with the Gnostics and others, the Docetists, they struggled to believe that Jesus was truly human. So they could say all kinds of good things about Jesus that were true, but if they said that he wasn't really truly human with eyes and ears and nose and blood and a spleen, etc. If they didn't affirm that, then they said, that book's out of here. I don't care what it says that's true about him elsewhere. If they're denying that he's truly a human being, it cannot be included. And books were denied because they didn't affirm that creation itself needed redemption. Um, not just our human souls needed redemption, our spirits, but our bodies as well. So these are some of the things that they're looking at and they're being rejected. So when any document did not affirm truths such as these, they were rejected as not orthodox. So there's a very careful transmission of truth. They were looking at uh, what was said in these books versus the transmission of truth that the apostles Passed down, And if they didn't line up, they said this book is not included. For instance, there were many Gospels that were being written uh, in the, at the end of the first century, into the second century, into the third century, all the way, believe it or not, to the ninth century. There were still people writing Gospels. Uh, in fact, there were some 45 to 60 extra Gospels that were being written. Written Gospels like, uh, you've probably heard about the Gospel of Thomas, uh, the Gospel of Peter. Uh, if you're familiar with the Jesus Seminar movement 25 years ago when I was in college and seminary, uh, we're saying that, you know, these we can't trust the Gospels that we have and we should include uh, Peter or the what Gospel of Peter or Thomas. Hmm? What defines a Gospel versus a letter? Well, just that it's a, uh, the story of Jesus' life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, gospel means good news, and I would say Paul includes the gospel in his, but as far as an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Uh, so early on, uh, we have lots of gospels being written, but early on, the four canonical gospels were written before 100 A.D. Uh, and this is kind of going to what you're saying there, Carl. One of the major criteria of determining which gospel gets included was, did it have Jesus dying a bloody death on the cross for sinners, and did it include his resurrection? That was a big criteria. If the cross is not there and the resurrection is not there, I don't care what it says about Jesus, we're not going to include it. In fact, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Peter, I can't remember, was written. I can't remember when they say it was written in the second century. And it's supposed to be a collection of these sayings of Jesus. But it doesn't have a bloody Savior on a cross. It doesn't have a victorious, triumphant Savior in resurrection. And so the church is saying, we're not including that. So, was there a question? Yeah. Okay, but so one day, you've got the four Gospels floating around. One day, this guy named Tatian decided, let's put all the four Gospels into one book. In fact, it was the Christians really at the end of the first century who kind of came up with this, what's called the Codex, really. Uh, it used to be all scrolls back up until then. And you can only put so much information on scrolls. But Christians were really the ones who popularized the, like, the Codex, which is... Uh, 
pages upon pages that are, we would say, stapled together or glued together so you could actually make a book. It was really Christians who popularized that at the end of the first century in putting some of the Gospels together and putting, you know, you got maybe, maybe you had a copy of Mark and then you're like, hey, I can glue a couple of Paul's letters here and we can pass these around. So it was really Christians who kind of popularized what we would call as a book today. And so this guy named Tatian finally comes along one day and he's like, let's put all the Gospels together in one book. All the events, all the stories of Jesus, let's do one big mega gospel. And he called it the Dia Tesseron, which in Latin just means through the four. Let's look at the life of Jesus through the four gospels in one big mega gospel. And so Tatian gets it published to help kind of simplify things. Uh, And it was used in some churches in their liturgy, but it never took off and it never really replaced the four canonical gospels. He had pieces together this one big mega gospel. Why did it not take off? Here's why. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were too well known at that time to be replaced. And this occurred in 170 A.D., Tatian is putting together mega gospel, Diatessaron, in 170 AD. And the church is kind of like, that's really neat. You've got some stories of Jesus there. But we're kind of used to the four gospels. So already in 170 AD, you have the church affirming we have four gospels. And they're all written before 100 AD. So they weren't just glued together. They were putting the stories together. Yeah, I think he was putting together stories as much as he could, probably trying to do like a synoptic gospel, mm-hmm. them, putting them all together. And I think everybody is, I think is my understanding would be that everybody's thinking, we like the way Mark tells his story. We don't want you to take like a chunk of Mark and put it here and take a chunk of Matthew and put it here. Even if you get it all together, we're used to each individual biblical author telling their story in their way as the Spirit inspired them, writing to certain people, like Matthew's writing to Jewish people. We want to preserve that because he's linking us back to Chronicles. And so Mega Gospel never really took off. I'm just calling it Mega Gospel. He called it Dia Tesseron, but Mega Gospel sounds cooler, I think, because we don't know Latin. Through the four. Through the four. So... Finally, in 180 AD, uh, Irenaeus that we looked at a couple of classes ago, he comes out and says there are only four Gospels. In fact, Irenaeus says, as there are four winds, there are four Gospels. And no one at this time stands up and says, what? You're wrong. There's more Gospels. Irenaeus is saying, God has given us four winds that blow in four directions, and he's given us four Gospels. And nobody stands up and says, you're out of your mind. In fact, here's what he says. And it was in his book against heresies. Hence Marcion, he says this, It is not possible that the Gospels can either be more or fewer in number than they are. For, since there are four zones of the world in which we live, and four principal winds, while the church is scattered throughout all the world, and the pillar and ground in 1 Timothy 3.15 of the church is the Gospel and the Spirit of life, it is fitting that she should have four pillars Breathing out immortality on every side and vivifying men afresh or making them alive. He's saying God has given us four gospels to breathe out immortality and to vivify us, to to make us alive. And so by the end of the second century, we have the four gospels in place as well as a good chunk and a good core of the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody has their own copy of the gospel or each letter of Paul, because they didn't. Now, the the bishops for sure had their own copies. 
But just not your average Christian is having all of that. But they are being copied and they are being copied and they are being copied. And it's technically true that the canon was not officially fixed until the middle of the 4th century. Because of the councils that finally came out and said this is it. But by the end of the 2nd century we have widespread acceptance about which books are to be considered authoritative. So it's misleading to just say, and you'll hear some people say this, well, the canon wasn't closed until the middle of the 4th century at that council. It's not uh, accurate to say that because by the end of the 2nd century, we have 20 to 21 of the 27 books of the New Testament that are in place, that people are reading, that people are talking about, that people are affirming in widespread acceptance. There's Catholicity. We've got the four Gospels, we've got Acts, we've got many epistles of Paul, and probably 1 Peter at this point. So there's a huge core of the New Testament that's in place and widely accepted by all the churches by the end of the 2nd century. And then, the rest of the discussion about the canon does play out until the middle of the 4th century over books... That for one reason or another were considered to be on the fringe because they're too short or they're a little different. Like Revelation, people are like, that's kind of weird. I don't know. They talk about that. They talk about Philemon. They talk about Jude and they say those are kind of short. They talk about Second Peter and say that's a little different. So it took a while for a few of these books to settle in. Other books were considered, but not ultimately included. First Clement that we looked at, The Shepherd of Hermas. These books never got the corporate recognition and the widespread acceptance across the board from all churches, and so they are not included. So we eventually get to A.D. 367, when Athanasius, who we'll look at eventually, writes what is called the Festal Letter, and he lists the 27 books of the New Testament that we have, and that eventually get reasserted in the councils that follow. In fact, Athanasius is the first person to use the word canon. He lists the 27 books that we have in our New Testament. And those 27 books were really just written by nine people. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, who wrote Luke, Luke and who wrote Acts. Acts is the second part of Luke. They go together. You've got John, Paul, James... You've got Peter, Jude, and then you've got the author of Hebrews. You remember Origen that we looked at a couple of classes ago? Origen said, only God knows who that is. That's good for me. Questions or comments? And we'll continue in two weeks and uh, kind of see where we land up. We'll talk about some uh, manuscript uh, uh, discrepancies when you have like, you know, the Bible says, well, this manuscript says this, this manuscript says this. We'll talk about some of those things. Uh, Why do you suppose it wasn't put together in chronological order? Why? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah. I don't know why they didn't. Probably probably because it took a while, and then maybe people got used to it. I don't know. Like, you're going to stick 1 Peter right there? Come on. I don't know. I don't know. I saw him. Along the lines, why did did we change the Old Testament order of the way the Torah is written? Why don't we change it? I don't know why. I'm assuming because um, Malachi is the last actual prophet that prophesies. He's prophesying during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century, around 450, 425-ish, somewhere around there. It's probably because he's the last uh, prophet who's 
prophesying. I'm assuming that's why. Ezra and Nehemiah come right before 1 Chronicles in the, in the Hebrew Bible. So they're, they're almost there. They're saying Ezra and Nehemiah, they've come back from exile. But they're saying we want to take this book, First and Second Chronicles, that was written to people in exile. And we want to put it at the end so that we're kind of left anticipating and wanting uh, something. So I don't know the exact reason why, Barb. Was it has have you read anything on why Hebrews was written? Because authorship seems to be really, really important. It, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I don't know why the author of Hebrews didn't include his name. But some people say it's Paul, some people say it's Barnabas. Um, we we really don't know. All we know is that the person obviously was I would assume they're Jewish. Uh, because they know a lot about the Old Covenant and they know the Scriptures. I mean, they quote the Old Testament constantly. Why the person did not include their name, I have no idea. But I think looking at it, I think it definitely passes the Orthodox test. Especially, you have in, where does it say in Hebrews that the Old Covenant is is passing away? Um, oh, where does it say that? Um, in, in Hebrews 8, verse 13, it says, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So the author of Hebrews is saying, The old covenant is ready to vanish away. And I think we saw that most clearly in AD 70 when Titus destroyed Jerusalem. That was kind of the nail in the coffin on the old covenant. God saying, This is done away. And so I think maybe when you get into the second century and they're talking about Hebrews, they're saying, he was right in Hebrews 8.13. He said the old covenant was vanishing away. And we saw what Titus did to Jerusalem in AD 70. So this book is, is orthodox. It's true. What it says there is true. We saw it happen. So I don't know why they didn't include their name. They'll probably get there and we don't know who it'll be. How long was it that you... Uh... I, I don't know. I don't know. There's no way. I just know that there's copies and copies. An actual full Bible, we don't know. I think people were making copies once the Gospels were uh, being written. And we'll talk about some of the, uh, I want to say, the manuscript evidence that we have. And by manuscript, it can mean anything from a full text of a Gospel to just a little fragment that says almost Jesus, J-E-S-U, and you're like, well, we know that says Jesus, and we can tell from this word up here that it's, it's Mark chapter 7, verse 3, because of these words. Anyway, any the manuscript evidence, I, I don't know the exact number. I want to say it's in the 5,000s of actual pieces, if you will, of Scripture, whether it's a full-blown text or just a piece of a copy. I want to say that if you stack them up, they would go well over a mile into the sky if you just took every little piece that we have. So we have all this evidence. So I don't know when, but we do know that the church was making copies and copies and copies and copies. We'll talk about this next time. But what happens when you make copies and copies and copies and copies? Yeah. Is it like the old telephone game? What we have, remarkably, is really the same stuff. There are 75% of these, what we would call 
discrepancies, manuscript discrepancies, 75% of them are what they call nonsense errors, meaning there's a word that's used and you're like, uh, and it's like there's, there's a passage, I think, in John which talks about, it says, we, we'll talk about this next time, we became gentle among you, or I mean, in, in uh, I think 1 Thessalonians 1, we became gentle among you, or we were lowly with you. It's like apioi and hapioi. There's one version of 1 Thessalonians where it says, the word, I can't remember the word, it's like, uh, it's either apioi, hapioi, or nehapioi. And someone writes, we became nehapioi among you, which if I remember correctly is like the word for horse or something. So you're looking at that and you're saying, oh, they meant to say gentle. They meant to say lowly. Some guy accidentally wrote that. We know that's a nonsense error. We know that they didn't become horses. And so is the meaning of the text changed if Paul says we became gentle among you or we became lowly among you? Is the meaning changed? No. And so in anything that we're looking at, any sort of discrepancy between two texts, anything that we look at, we will see, and you can see over and over again, that no core doctrine is ever at stake. So we'll talk more about that next time. So when do people have copies of it? A full copy? We can at least say by A.D. 367, Athanasius is saying there's 27. And by then, I think there would be piling up. My guess is that people are making copies, and Greg finds out that that Carl has a copy of Mark, and he's like, man, I want to come over like three days this week and write that thing out. And so I don't know when they got all of them. Certainly they had access to the Old Testament, uh, at least in the synagogues and churches. I thought I had heard somewhere where they, the people didn't actually have a copy of Scripture until like the 1300s or something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. Not until you, you get the printing press where they really getting access. Now, could you have written, did the bishops probably have most of this? Did Athanasius for sure at that time? Yeah. Did the, if anyone has as many copies as they could, I would think it would be the bishops that did. Most of the people, well, at least the 13, 14, 15, the common people, a lot of them couldn't read anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, and that's one reason it's written in Koine Greek so that they, the New Testament is. The Catholic Church pretty much went Latin and kept it within the priesthood. Didn't yeah. And the average person. Yeah. They didn't want him to read it. With, that was Martin Luther's. Yeah, yeah. The if you church see, was in control of the whole They're in control of everything. And when you see the movie Luther, if you've yeah. seen it, there's a scene where, where it's translated where one of these priests uh, is, actually gets his own copy of the Bible for the first time and his hands are shaking and he has tears because he's like, I actually get to hold and read God's word. So you're right. So, all right. Let's pray. And one more question, Carrie. Because there are books that have shown up that should have been included in the Old Testament, and you know there are Dead Sea Scrolls. There's other yeah. things that have been yeah. found that should have been included. Therefore, we don't have a truly complete gospel. What's the What's the most simple way to respond to somebody saying that? There probably isn't. Other than. Other than we're a people of faith, and I'm, I'm taking by faith that the Old Testament that, that I have is the Old Testament that Jesus had. We at least can put that together through a lot of the quotations. But again, it's a, I'm, I'm trusting by faith that that is the Word of God. Going back to what the Westminster Confession says, that the Spirit is, is you know, 
uh, reaffirming that truth in our hearts. So I think at the end of the day, you have to say, you have to ask that person, are you willing to examine the evidence and maybe point them to some books and things like that and say, look, I've looked at the evidence. The Spirit is testifying when I read God's Word that this is God's Word, and I've done the evidence. And I'm honest about, hey, for me, I'm honest about the ending of Mark. I don't think it, it belongs there where they pick up snakes and drink poison. I think that was added much later. And you can look, study that and see the evidence and say, yes, but what we do have is I think we can say, and we have to, because if we can't say that this book is God's word, we are to be pitied more than anyone. And so I think it come, for us, it comes down to faith that then we use reason to examine. And so I think it just depends on the person. Are they willing to say, I'll, I'll do some research and study. And at the end of the day, not everyone's going to agree on this. So I don't think there's a simple answer other than, hey, here's a book you should read. They may still push back on that. Yeah. But for us, for me, it comes down to faith. I mean, I'm literally, I've built everything in my life on this book. And if this book is not true, man, I mean. The cool part about the Old Testament, though, is Christ says, Genesis to Chronicles, right. he puts Chronicles. So he puts it there and says, yeah. that's the canon. Yeah. I mean, he nails the canon for the Old Testament. So yeah. That's great. Then the Quamron Caves, I mean, you got to love that when they find Isaiah. And it's not 75%. It's like 98% identical. It's, what, 500 years between the earliest copy we have and, and that one? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. I mean, that's how serious they were about copying the Torah. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be open about these things, and because some Christians, there's going to be, you know, no, I just believe it's God's word. It's like you want to study and do the the evidence. There's a passage in the Old Testament where uh, one uh, the prophets is prophesying about a foreign nation coming in and uh, ransacking Jerusalem or something, and it just says this foreign nation. Well, after the event happens, people that are copying the scriptures say, well, we know that was Babylon. So instead of saying some foreign nation, they write Babylon. So you may have a discrepancy there. It's like, why is that? Well, it's like because after it happened, people realize, oh, we don't know who that was. Yeah. And so they'll do that. So we have to be honest about, like we saw last week in First Kings, is it that Elijah saw or Elijah feared? Where some Christians, I don't think, want to do that because they're afraid. Like, if I start getting out there and studying, I'm going to lose hope and lose faith. No, I come to this book in faith, and then I'm honest about looking at how it was put together. I mean, as we've looked at, it, it wasn't just it wasn't put together before 100 A.D. It, it, at least by the end of the second century, they're talking about 20 to 21 of the books of the 27, and at least by A.D. 367, Athanasius. So I think it comes down to faith, and is that person open to that? And if they're not, then just the face is... We believe scripture is truth, and then like you said, therefore we must trust that the Holy Spirit inspired yeah. those who were putting yeah. it together, yeah. and we have to trust that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I mean, I do. I have, to, I have to believe that the Spirit was working through that. Otherwise, if they come and say he wasn't, I mean, my, you know, I'm to be pitied more than anyone if this book is not true. So. And the Word testifies to your spirit. That yeah, true. yeah. The Spirit is, is working when you read. You know when you read God's Word. You can read the Apocrypha. You can read the Apostolic Fathers. And maybe there might be something in there. But it's not affecting you the way Scripture does. You can read other books that people write. And they're awesome. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to pick between a book by John Calvin or the Scriptures, 
on a desert island, I'm going with the scriptures, you know, because the spirit is testifying in my heart. This is my word. So anyway, no easy answer, really. It's just a, a worldview and where are people coming from and if they're open to it and, and praying that God would change their eyes, change their mind and open their eyes to see. Yeah. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you that you worked through your spirit, uh, through your church to put together what we know as the New Testament canon. We believe that the Bible that we have is your word. It is the sole authority for all of our faith and practice. May we love it more, may we read it more, memorize it more, think about it, meditate on it, Lord, and help us to share the hope that we have through your word about your son, Jesus. May we share it with others wherever you have placed us in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.